So our first reading is from Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, and it's on page 1018 in your pew Bible. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Dugia, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's respond to this first reading by singing together hymn 201, O Little Town of Bethlehem.
picking up at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Let us respond to this reading with hymn 214, Angels We Have Heard on High.
We've heard uh, the story of Jesus' birth from the Gospel of Luke. We've responded with song, and now I want to reflect for a few moments on two themes in this passage. The hidden hand behind the humble birth and the light that shines in the darkness. First, consider with me the hidden hand behind the humble birth. The hidden hand that's at work behind this humble birth. Luke begins his story by contrasting the decrees of the Roman emperor with a humble birth in poverty in rural Judea. After the angelic appearances to Zechariah and Mary and the birth of John the Baptist in Luke 1, Luke pulls back from this particular family's story to the broader events of the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus was a pivotal figure in consolidating the Roman Empire under one ruler and in elevating the position of the Caesar as the sole leader of the empire. In fact, before Augustus, Caesar was a family name like Chambers. After Augustus, it was an imperial title that the emperors used. Augustus claimed that his adopted father, Julius Caesar, had become a god upon his death, and therefore Augustus himself was a son of God. In 6 uh, BC, Judea came under direct Roman control, and so although we have no extra-biblical evidence for this census or registration that Luke talks about, it fits entirely plausibly within what we know of what's happening in this time period. Registrations listed people, but for bureaucratic purposes, a registration was a claim of ownership. Caesar says, you belong to me. It's a claim of lordship. In fact, another registration a few years later led to a Jewish revolt when Jesus was a child. So uh, pugnacious were these registrations. From the perspective of God's people living in Judea, things are about as dark and as bad as can be. A foreign dictator who sets himself up as a son of God has claimed control and lordship over the land of Judea and over God's people. Despair has reached its depths. And yet, Luke says, Caesar Augustus' claims to absolute universal rule are but the backstory to the story of the true Son of God being born into the world. By starting the story of Jesus' birth in this way, Luke is making an important point that the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, has global significance. It's more important even than Caesar's and empire's. Here is the birth of a king and a kingdom that eclipses even mighty Rome. In fact, the Roman emperor unwittingly serves the hidden hand of God, the true ruler governing all things. And so, as John Calvin puts it, a dictator's bidding pulls Mary away from her home in fulfillment of prophecy. In the depths of despair, when things are at their bleakest, here is God at work. It's not exactly clear why people are sent to their ancestral homes to be registered. Perhaps it's a way to play on Jewish tribal affiliations to get people to go along with the registration. Uh, an Egyptian registration about 100 years later also sent people back to their ancestral homes. Uh, I know Brian asked about that last week. I didn't figure out the answer, and no one seems to be quite sure, but they send people to their ancestral homes. Again, it, it, Luke's story, we, it fits the general practice in the Roman Empire. What we do know is that centuries earlier, Micah the prophet had proclaimed, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, 
Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And so Rome is unwittingly serving God's plan. Rome is at work to put Mary in the place where she needs to be for God's chosen ruler to be born. Rome's rule is only provisional insofar as it suits God's purposes. About the time of Jesus' birth, the governor of the Roman province of Asia uh, suggested that the civic calendar should begin on September 23rd, Augustus' birthday, uh, since the governor said uh, that date might justly be considered equal to the beginning of all things, for Augustus has given a different appearance to the whole world, a world which would have fallen into ruin if he had not been born. Well, Luke tells us the story of the one whose birth has truly changed the whole world. But his birth is not marked by any imperial celebration. No royal announcements, no honor guard. It's about as humble of a birth as is imaginable. Complying with the registration, Joseph returns from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem, since he is of the house and line of David. Along with Joseph goes pregnant Mary. Luke says they were betrothed, not yet uh, consummated their marriage, and yet she was with child. The child comes from God, not from human conception. We're not told how long they were in Bethlehem, perhaps several weeks. We aren't told why Mary traveled with Joseph, uh, given her pregnancy. Perhaps, though, there were already rumors and gossip going about town back in Nazareth, such that Joseph thought it better to bring her with him. In any case, they are in Bethlehem, and while they are there, it came time for Mary to give birth. And Luke packs a lot into verse 7. Do you see how it unfolds? She gave birth to her firstborn. What's his birthright as a firstborn? Nothing but this. They're in the city of David because they're from the line of David. Could this be the promised ruler coming from Bethlehem from the line of David? But do you see his poor estate? She wrapped him in strips of cloth and lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The feeding trough and no place for the inn could mean that Jesus was born in a stable, as many uh, nativity scenes have it. But this isn't the usual word for inn, and Bethlehem was a small town not on any major crossroads, and so it's unlikely that Bethlehem actually had a commercial inn in it. The phrase could also mean there was no room for them in the guest room, or there was no guest room for them. In the homes of many common and poor people in Judea, animals were kept on the ground floor, the living space was upstairs. And so perhaps what we should picture is that the animals were sent out of the ground floor and it was cleaned up so that Mary and Joseph could have some private space. Or then again, early church tradition has it that Jesus was born in a cave near Bethlehem that was used to keep animals, had been converted into a stable. There's more than one way to imagine the scene, but what is clear is that it is a scene of poverty. It's a humble birth in obscurity on the margins of the empire. Calvin again comments, Such was his manner of birth, for he had put on our flesh to the end that he might empty himself for our sake. This birth is part of the self-emptying, not that Christ should lose any glory through it, but only that for a time it should be concealed. The Son of God emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
in a humble situation on the margins. And Luke subtly foreshadows where this humble uh, Christ humility will end up. He writes here, she wrapped him in cloths, cloth strips and laid him in a manger. Then in chapter 23, he writes, they wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. The same verbs are used in both cases. Luke begins by contrasting these imperial claims and this humble birth orchestrated by a hidden hand. He's saying the undoing of all uh, uh, empire, uh, uh, empire's claims to power are undone by this birth of a child. And yet, what of this humble birth? Surely many children were born in obscurity and poverty during Augustus' reign. Why is this significant? To show us what the birth means, how we ought to respond, Luke takes us to the shepherds in the field who are provided, uh, provide us with an interpretive clue to what these events mean. They hear the message, they show us how to respond. And so consider this second theme in Luke's story, that light shines in the darkness. Light shines in the darkness. Luke shows us in uh, the second part of this chapter what John tells us. John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's what John tells us at the beginning of his gospel. Luke turns from Jesus' birth to a dark scene. Shepherds in the countryside watching their flocks by night. And then light shines in the darkness. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Moses asks to see God's glory, and God answers, I will make my goodness pass before you, but you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Isaiah has a vision of the glory of the Lord filling the temple, and he cries out, Woe is me, I am ruined. Ezekiel sees a likeness of the glory of the Lord and falls flat on his face. And now an angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shines around them and they are filled with great fear. But the angel invites the shepherds to exchange great fear for great joy. Luke uses the same phrase here, great fear, great joy. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. God in his glory, if we see it, leads to great fear, to collapsing on our face, to crying out, woe is me, even to death. But now the angel says, instead of great joy, or instead of great fear, we can have great joy because of the good news that the angel brings us. What is this good news? No one has ever seen God, no one may see God and live, and yet the glory of the Lord is made known in the face of this baby, born a humble birth on the margins of the empire. The angel's announcement echoes Isaiah 9 that we already read, and it gives us three clues to why this humble birth is so important. First, today a Savior is born for you. Caesar Augustus also claimed to be a Savior who won great victories and brought peace throughout the Roman Empire for over a century. But Jesus is a Savior who brings peace with God. Jesus never promised a century of peace or a period of peace on earth like Caesar Augustus, but rather he says, I make God between, or peace between God and humanity. 
Through Jesus, we know God's fatherly love towards us. And this is the foundation of great joy. Second, the Savior is Christ, the Messiah, the promised hope of Israel. So he's saying the hopes and fears of all the years are met in him. This message of great joy is rooted in the story of Israel, the law and the prophets. The Savior comes to fulfill the law through humble obedience and to be the promise of the prophets. And then third, this Christ, the Savior, this promised Messiah of Israel is the Lord. As with much of Luke's story, it resonates with both Jewish and Roman contexts. Caesar as Lord is one of the main claims of the imperial cult. And yet, Luke says, in this humble birth, the true Lord comes. But even more than this, the Savior who is born to bring peace with God is the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, who walked with them in the wilderness, come in the flesh. The shepherds then are given a humble sign that this good news is true. What is the sign? You will find an infant swaddled and lying in a manger. What a counterintuitive sign that God himself, the creator of the universe, has been born into the world and the sign is strips of cloth and a baby in a manger. The Venerable Bede notes, the sign given is not a child enfolded in Tyrian purple, but one wrapped round with rough pieces of cloth not found in an ornate golden bed, but in a manger. This is a different sort of king whose birth is humble, who is signified by humble signs. And the pattern continues. What are the signs that the Lord gives his people of his grace, of peace with God? A little washing with water that we call baptism, a humble meal, a little morsel of bread, and a sip of wine, or today it'll be... Uh, cranberry juice, <laughs> a humble meal that we call communion, the Eucharist. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? The glory of God hidden in a little washing and a little meal. And what is the great end of Jesus being born in this humble, low estate? Why is he wrapped in cloth, lied in a manger? Why is he wrapped in linen shroud and laid in a tomb? Why does he give himself to make peace between God and humanity? Well, the angels say, it brings glory to God in the highest. The glory of the Lord shines through this baby in the manger, through his humble birth, through his humble, obedient life, through his wretched death, through his glorious resurrection. It's all to the glory of God. Here then is the good news. Today a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. This good news is the foundation for transforming fear before God into joy before God. How do we respond then? How do we trade great fear for great joy? Well, the shepherds give us a model. They hear the good news, just as you're hearing it right now. Then they hurry to respond. Literally, they say, come on, let's get going to Bethlehem and see this thing. Hearing secondhand, as it were, is not enough. They've got to come to Jesus for themselves. So friends, the first step in responding is not only hearing this message, but coming to Jesus, seeing him, for yourself. Notice they don't go alone, but they encourage one another. They say, come on, friend, let's go together. As you hear this good news and respond, you need to be part of a body of Christians who encourages you to seek the Lord. So the shepherds hurry and they find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
Imagine that scene. It's a bit like you're on the way to the hospital to give birth and you pass a, a, a road construction project and then after you give birth, all the road workers come in to see the baby and the road's filled with... I mean, that's the scene here is these shepherds from the field coming straight from their work into the, the, the room to see the baby. They see for themselves and what do they do? They tell others and they go glorifying and praising God. The good news, great fear transformed into great joy. Peace between God and man, it's all to the glory of God. And so they go away singing to God's glory. Friends, it's Christmas. Let's be careful not to sentimentalize the story of Jesus' birth. He came in poverty, obscurity, on the margins of the empire, but a hidden hand is at work that is the undoing of all imperial claims to power. God governs even Caesar Augustus, directing the Roman Empire to his own end. But let's also not trivialize Jesus' birth. Here is light shining in the darkness. Here is the good news that we need to hear. Good news that is great joy for all. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this humble birth. This humble birth that is light shining in the darkness. We thank you that this good news that Christ has come to make peace between God and man can transform our great fear into great joy. And so we ask, Lord, some today are perhaps wrestling with this good news, wondering if it's too good to be true. By your Spirit, show them that it is indeed true. Others of us, Lord, uh, have celebrated many Christmases and we tend to sentimentalize or trivialize it. Help us to remember how world-changing the claims of Christmas Day are. Indeed, Lord, let us celebrate this Christmas Day with great joy that today a Savior is born for us, who is Christ the Lord. Amen. We're going to turn to